You're listening to the Jewel City Podcast. You can join us in person Sundays at 10 a.m. or 6 p.m. We have something for all people and all ages. Or join our live stream at 10 a.m. In this podcast, we're going to hear a message from our youth leader, Hannah Fetty. I had put um, a little thing in my notes because I'm a very much a planner. So even when I'm thinking about, you know, how to introduce uh, you know, how to start a message. I'm like, okay, what am I going to say? I'm like, I bet. I was like, I'm so confident that my mic is going to work this week that I'm going to put it in my notes that, wow, this is the first time in three times that my mic has worked, but it didn't work. And so, uh, but it's, again, it's good to start off the morning with a little laugh. And so I'm really excited to be here with you all. And I really feel that there's a message that the Lord has put in my heart to share with you all. And so um, without further ado, we're going to go ahead and get into it because we have a lot of uh, scripture to get through. So definitely be praying for the media people in the back because they're going to have to keep up with all of that. So pray a special blessing over them as we, as we get into this. But we're going to be in Romans 12. Um, so if you'll stand and turn to Romans 12 in your Bibles. All right, so starting in verse one, it says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So dear Heavenly Father, God, we just come before you today, God, and we are so grateful. We are so humbled by you, Lord, just as we just declared that you are the most lovely, that you are the most wonderful, God, and that you alone are worthy of our worship, God, and that we would just bow down before you, bow our lives before you, God. And I pray that as we dig into your scripture this morning, Lord, that God, um, you would just touch hearts and minds, God, that you would prepare each heart and mind in this place, Lord, for the word that you have for them, God. And God, I pray that this... Uh, the, in scripture, it says that your word does not return void, Lord. And we, as we go over your scripture, as we study it, as we dig into it, Lord, that it will not return void, God, that it will transform, just as this verse says, that the, the, transform, the transformation and the renewing of the mind, God. And so our minds will be renewed this morning. We will be transformed. God, we um, will see you and we will discover your will and your purposes and plans for us. We will discover your heart, God. And God, I just pray over the service that every word uttered would be from and of you, God, and that ultimately you and you alone would receive all of the glory because that's who we're doing all this for. All of this worship, all of this, it's all for you, God, not for, all, not for us, but for you, God. And so I pray that it would all bring you glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can be seated. Okay, so this verse comes in. Paul's letter to the Romans. And so up until this point in the book of Romans or in his letter to the Romans, he's talked about his goal to present salvation to all of the Jews and the Gentiles. He's talked about the unrighteousness of men. If you guys know the verse, for all have fallen short of the glory of God, falls in that little section. He talks about God's provision of salvation through Jesus Christ. He talks about holy living and sanctification. Um, and he talks about his desire for salvation for his own people, the Jews, but their hearts had been hardened up until this point. And so that's what he was just talking about in this letter right before we come into this verse in Romans 12. And so he says, I appeal to you, therefore. Um, and when there's a therefore, you have to ask what it's there for. In order to see what it's there for, you have to go back 
Um, and so going back to chapter, uh, to Romans 11, starting in verse 32, it says, For God has consigned all to disobedience, so that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? Or who has given him the gift that might be repaid? For from him and through him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And so, once again, Paul had just talked about his desire for salvation for his own people. Um, and then he's talking about how great God's plan is. That we have all been given over to our disobedience so that God's mercy might show. And so that we see God's mercy um, given to us uh, through our own disobedience and just talking about out of this great mercy that he has recognized comes this beautiful praise of, oh, the depth of riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments. So this beautiful worship comes from this recognition of his great mercy. And so this statement that we're reading here in Romans 12 also comes from this recognition of the great depth of his mercy toward us as sinners and his great love for us. And so in light of that mercy, he is urging us to present our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. And so what exactly does that mean? What does it mean to be a living sacrifice? So if you are familiar with the Old Testament, you know that in the Old Covenant that in order to um, make up for or atone for sins that people had to give uh, an animal sacrifice. And this, uh, but when Jesus came, uh, you know, this animal sacrifice foreshadowed, foreshadowed the sacrifice of the Lamb of God, Jesus. But because of Jesus's ultimate once for all sacrifice, that Old Testament sacrifices, that old covenant became obsolete and was no longer of any effect, which we see uh, in Hebrews. Um, and it says in Colossians 1.14 that we have been bought by the blood and made free. Our sins are forgiven through him. And so that old covenant says we had to come and make an animal sacrifice. The new covenant, covenant says that Jesus has come and made this ultimate sacrifice. And so in response to that, we are to be a living sacrifice. And so, again, what does that mean? Well, Romans 12 actually tells us. It tells us to not be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we can be, as verse one says, holy and acceptable before the Lord. In Romans 8, 12 through 13, it says, so then brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But by the spirit you put, death, put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So, and being in Christ, we are alive. There is life that is found in Christ. And so we are living our lives for him, and that is what it is to be a living sacrifice. And so um, as Romans 12 says, that we would offer ourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, set apart, not letting sin reign um, in our lives. And so when animals were sacrificed in the Old Testament and as a part of the Old Covenant, those animals that were to be sacrificed, they had to be set apart. They had to be clean. Um, and so, so are we today and with our lives to be set apart from the world, that we are not to look like the world. We are not to be conformed to the world, um, but we are to be transformed by Christ who lives in us. And so um, with all of that, uh, 
Paul is saying, um, I just spent the past 11 chapters, which when he wrote his letter, it wasn't already divided into 11 chapters. But he's like, I already spent this past, rest of this book, the rest of this letter, talking to you about how great, how amazing, how wonderful our God is, about his great and fantastic mercy that he has given out to us, that we could never deserve, that we could never earn, that we could never, ever attain. I've just spent this whole book talking about it, about how much God loves you, and his great, again, his great mercy and grace towards you. And what other response could we possibly have than to give him our entire lives and to be a living sacrifice unto him? To give all of our lives, to give everything I have, to give everything I am to him. Who could be more worthy of that? And so there's a phrase in the Hebrew language, um, and it is, I'm gonna try to say this right, um, hineni, and I think, there might be a slide. Yep, there it is. That's how you spell it in case you were wondering because I like to see the spelling of things. So it's hineni, and it means here I am. And I think that this word, um, which is used a few times throughout Scripture, is a perfect um, example of what it looks like to be a living sacrifice. And so this word doesn't just mean like it's a location. It's not like peekaboo, here I am. It's not just physically where you're at, but it is... Um, it is a matter of uh, being all in. It is a matter of being a living sacrifice. It's a beautiful response. So oftentimes this is in response to God speaking to someone, and it's pure, astonished, unguarded affirmation before all the facts are given. So this is God calls your name, and you say, here I am, before you even know what, what comes next. That it is, I am here, where and as you found me, fully attentive, focused. And even more, I am here with all that I can be, all that I am, all that I have. And so um, it is a response of undiluted presence, a response which sheds all reservations, all hesitancies, indicating a readiness to receive and respond to whatever experience is about to unfold. And so in scripture, we see there are six different times or six different people who responded to God using this phrase or using this word. Um, and those people are Abraham, Jacob, Moses, Samuel, Isaiah, and Ananias. And so it had been used in, in other responses to other people, but in response to God, it was used by six different men of scripture. And I would like to quickly um, just go through their lives and talk about where their here I am moment came. And so Abraham was the first. So Abraham, if you don't know anything about Abraham, Abraham was born to a man named Terah, who Joshua 24 tells us was a man who served and worshiped many gods. But after Abraham's dad's death, God came to him and said, hey, I want you to leave your country, leave your people, leave everything you've ever known, and follow me to a land that I have for you. He didn't tell him where the land was. He didn't tell him anything. He just said, come and follow. And Abraham was like, Sounds good to me. So he follows uh, where God calls him to. And this is the beginning of his faith journey. And as he goes along the way, you know, he has a lot of moments. He has his ups, he has his downs, he has his moments of like great faith. He has his moments of doubts. Um, but the Lord, one of the things in the, in the Lord's promise to Abraham was that he would make a great nation of Abraham through his offspring. And so at one point, Abraham and Sarah, which was his wife, they got a little too hasty, and they're like, we think we have to do this on our own, and so he has a child with his wife's 
servant, Hagar. Um, and then God was like, that was not what I wanted. And then eventually time passes and he has a little boy with his wife, Sarah, and his name is Isaac. And this is when he has his here I am moment, which if any of you have ever waited for something for so long, Abraham and Sarah were both late in their years. They were old. They had waited for this for forever. And if you've been in those situations where you've been waiting, um, just imagine how hard this thing that God asked of Abraham is. So in Genesis 22, one through three, it says, after all of these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place where God had told him. And so we see God calls, Abraham answers, God asks the impossible, and Abraham immediately obeys. It says in verse 3, so Abraham rose early the next morning. So first thing he could, first thing he could start this trip, he went and obeyed what God had asked of him. And so then in the following verses, um, it was a three-day journey. So I don't know if any of you have ever been asked by God to do something. Like that first day, that first moment, it's like, yes, I'm going to do what you ask God. I got this. I'm going to keep along the path. And then it's like the second day comes, and you're like, okay, Lord, I'm going to keep going. And then you get to the third day and you're like, okay, Lord, did you really say this or am I making all of this up? But no, uh, Abraham was faithful all three days. And so he gets to the three days. Um, he asks his servants to stay behind when they get to the third day. And he and Isaac travel alone. And in verse eight, Abraham, or well, first, Isaac asks, where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham responds in verse eight. He says, God will provide himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. So Abraham had faith that God would provide an offering. He had faith that God was going to do something with this. And so um, they get to the place where, you know, where the offering is going to be had, and he prepares uh, the wood, and he bounds Isaac to the altar. And just as he raises his knife, in verses 11 through 12, it says, But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, he said, Here I am. He said, do not lay a hand on your boy or do anything. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son from me. And so, again, even after God asked him to do the unthinkable, the impossible, that when he called his name, he was still all in. He's like, yes, Lord, I am here. I am attentive. I am focused on you. I am here. And um, so Abraham responded to God's first call, and he responded to his second call. Um, and it was an act of obedience that ended up leaving a legacy for his family and for all of the nations because from his faithfulness, from his uh, obedience, God promises again, he says, I will make a great nation out of you and your nation and your offspring will span across the entire world. And then we see uh, just a few years later, Jacob, who is actually Abraham's grandson or Isaac's son. So Jacob was the next here I am moment in scripture. And so Jacob had a brother named Esau. And if you know anything about their family dynamics, Jacob decided, Jacob was the younger brother and Esau was the older brother. And Jacob decided, hey, I want my brother's birthright, which if you don't know what a birthright is, it's essentially he, whoever had the birthright would get all of the father's um, 
like the right to the estate and the status of being the head of the household. And so he's like, I want that. And so one day Esau comes in, he's real hungry, and Jacob's like, I'll trade you some stew for your birthright. And that's what happens. And so Jacob takes his birthright, and then not only that, but he tricks his father um, into thinking that he's Esau in order to receive Esau's blessing. And so Jacob steals the birthright, he steals the blessing. Esau is very angry, so Esau pursues Jacob and wants to kill him. Jacob flees and he makes it to his uncle's house and he ends up uh, marrying Leah, the daughter, and then Rachel because he wanted to marry Rachel, but then uh, the Laban, his father-in-law, tricked him and made him think that Leah was Rachel and it was a whole crazy chaos. So like he deceived his brother and then he got deceived by Laban and then ended up there for a lot longer than he anticipated. And then he tried to make an agreement with Laban to get all this certain, these certain animals. And uh, he said, I'm gonna take all of the animals in your flock that have spots and are striped and all of these things. And um, Laban was like, yeah, sure, let's agree on that. But then he gave all of those to his sons. And so Laban just kept tricking him. And so in Genesis 31, 10 through 13, it says, in the breeding season of the flock, I lifted my eyes and saw in a dream that goats that mated with the flock were striped, spotted, and mottled. Then the angel of the Lord said to me in a dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes and see all of the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled, for I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise and go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. And so God tells Jacob to go back to his native land, which if you remember, we just talked about Esau is in his native land. Esau is not happy with him. So a little bit rightfully so. Jacob is a little bit nervous to go back there, but he's all in. He's like, all right, we're going back. And so he does. And then later in his life, he has another here I am moment with his son, Joseph, which if you know anything about Joseph, so Joseph was sold into slavery by all of his older brothers and he... Um, went through all of these different things and ended up in prison. Um, but eventually the Lord elevated him to the position of being the second in command in Egypt. And so um, his brothers go back to him and they're like, well, his brothers go to Egypt because there's a great famine in the land and they don't know that their brother is in charge of Egypt. And so they go uh, to visit him and he, um, he you know, kind of hides his face and tries to not let them know that it's him. And he says, bring your father back. And so they go and they bring their father back. Um, and in Genesis 46, one through four, and he, sorry, to bring your father back he, after he revealed himself. So in Genesis 46, one through four, it says, so Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. And God spoke to Israel, which is Jacob. Um, in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. And then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt for there I will make you a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt and I will bring you up again also. And Joseph's hand will cl close your eyes. And so um, in this instance, the brothers go back to get their father um, to bring him to Joseph. They're like, and he up until this point thought Joseph was dead. He thought his son was dead. And they say, your son, Joseph, he's alive and he's in charge of Egypt. He's second in command. Um, come with us. And so now, you know, he went back to his homeland to make amends with his brother. And now the Lord is calling him to go back, to go to Egypt um, and reconcile his whole family with Joseph um, 
but he's leaving all of his inheritance. He's leaving his father's land. He's leaving all of these things that he had worked so hard for. He's leaving all of this behind in pursuit of where God has asked him to go next. And in the next here I am moment, we have Moses, which if you know anything about Moses, he was raised by Pharaoh's daughter because Pharaoh had let out a decree that all the Israelite Israelite babies had to be killed, and so his mom put him in a river, or put him in a basket in the river, and Pharaoh's daughter picked him up, and she raised him as her own. And if you think about kind of what the state of Moses, like what he was in, like he was raised in a palace under Pharaoh's daughter. He was kind of considered royalty, but he really wasn't Egyptian. So in that way, he didn't really fit in with the Egyptians. And then in another way, he didn't really fit in with his own people either because he um, still got, he got to eat the finest foods. He didn't have to do all the labor and things that his fellow Hebrews, his fellow Israelites were doing. And so he was kind of just in this weird position in his life. And eventually there's one day that as when he's grown that he sees an uh, Egyptian soldier abusing this uh, Israelite, this Hebrew man. And in response to that, he killed the Egyptian and buried him in the sand. And he didn't think anybody saw him, but turns out somebody did. And so he's like, oh my gosh, I got to flee. I got to run. And so he goes on the run. He runs into this, uh, he goes into the field of this man named Jethro, ends up marrying Jethro's daughter. And he's just hanging out there for 40 years in the field, shepherding some sheep. So he has all this high Egyptian education. He has all of this knowledge, but here he is in a field tending to some sheep. And in Exodus 3, um, it says, uh, now Moses was keeping the flock of his father Jethro and the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him uh, in a flame out of the fire in the midst of a bush. And he looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it wasn't consumed. And so Moses sees this bush, it's burning, it's not being consumed. He's like, that's really weird, I should investigate it. And so um, picking up in verse three, it says, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. And when the Lord saw that he had turned aside to God, he called him, he called him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And then he said, do not come near, take off your sandals, the sandals of your feet, for the place which you are standing is on holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, and he was afraid to look at God. And then uh, God goes on to talk about how he has seen the affliction of his people in Egypt. He has seen the way they have been mistreated, and that Moses is the one that he has chosen to go and rescue his people out of Egypt. He is the tool, he is the instrument in which he is going to have this mass exodus um, from Egypt, this giant rescue. And uh, Moses' response, you know, at first he's all like, here I am, God. Um, he's a little questionable at first. He's like, Lord, are you sure you want to pick me? And then like God is like, yes. And then Moses is like, are you sure? And he's like, yes. And so um, Moses is the one chosen. And that even in his insecurities, even in all of these things, that he's still, okay, God, I'm in it. If you're really choosing me, I'm in it. And then we go to Samuel. And so uh, Samuel is our next here I am. And so Samuel's story, uh, he was just a boy when he had his here I am moment. And his here I am moment starts with his parents. It starts with his mother. So his mother was unable, her, his mother Hannah was unable to have children. She was barren. And she went and pled before the Lord for a child. 
And the Lord, um, she said, Lord, if you just give me this child, I promise I will dedicate this child to you for all of his days. And so the Lord grants her her prayer and she has a child. And in 1 Samuel 1, 26 through 28 says, oh my Lord, as you live, I'm the woman uh, who is standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And so for this child I have prayed that the Lord has granted my petition and now I'm giving him back. And what a beautiful thing. And I I don't have children, uh, but what a beautiful thing to dedicate your children to the Lord, that this child is for the Lord and his purposes and his plans, and that we would raise them up from a very young age to recognize what is the most important thing in life. And it is the Lord, and it is serving the Lord, knowing the Lord, and loving the Lord with all of your heart. And so as he grows up, he's now um, 11 years old, and uh, in 1 Samuel 3, uh, 1 through 10, it says, at that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. And Eli, sorry, I should have explained this. Eli is the priest at this time. So when Hannah gave, uh, Hannah gave Samuel back, he gave Samuel to the service of Eli, the priest. And so Eli, whose eyes were growing dim, uh, the lamp of the God had not gone out yet. And Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. And then the Lord called to Samuel and he said, Here I am. And then he ran into Eli and said, Here I am, for you have called me. But Eli said, I didn't call you. Go lie back down. So he went and laid down. And the Lord called again, and he said, Samuel. And Samuel rose and went to Eli again and said, Here I am, for you have called me. But he said, I did not call you, my son. Lie down. So now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again a third time, and he rose, and he went to Eli, and he said, Here I am, for you called me. And then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go lie down, and if he calls you, you shall speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went down to lie down in his place, and the Lord came and stood, calling at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, speak for your servant hears. And so the Lord then went on to reveal to Samuel all of these things he was going to do in Israel. God revealed his secrets. God revealed his innermost truths. And it's really cool because when we get close to God and Samuel might not have yet, if you noticed in verse um, seven, it said Samuel did not yet know the Lord and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. So he had been studying the word. He'd been studying these things of the Lord. He'd been studying under this priest, but he yet did not yet realize or recognize the voice of God. Um, but he was ready. He was prepared. He was equipped because he had been studying. He had been uh, learning about the Lord and God revealed his secrets because God reveals his secrets to us, right? As we study the word, as we get to know him, he reveals his secrets to us, um, uh, I know many times in scripture where Jesus says that everything that the Father knows he has made known to me and now I give to you. And so all of these mysteries are made known to us in the word of God. And so our, our next here I am comes from Isaiah. And um, Isaiah, we don't really have a backstory for, but we just see his calling in Isaiah 6. And so it tells us that Isaiah has this vision. And in this vision, he essentially sees the glory and the amazingness of God. He sees Jesus with his robe that fills the entire temple. 
And he sees all of these heavenly beings crying out. Um, and verse three says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the holiness, this holiness of Jesus that Isaiah perceived and Isaiah recognized, um, we see in verse, uh, in the next verses that it made him realize his own sinfulness. And so in response to that, uh, we see in Isaiah 6, verse 6, it says, Then one seraphim flew to me, having his hand on a burning coal that he took with tongs from an altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. And I, have, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am. Send me. And he said, and then he told him to go and tell the people a message of judgment, which was a hard message. And God also told Isaiah that these people's hearts were going to be hardened. He was going to give this message to them, but it was going to be hard. So it was a hard thing to do, but Isaiah was all in. And if you notice, this is one of the only ones, um, the only ones called that there wasn't a specific name. He wasn't, God didn't say, Isaiah, Isaiah. He said, who will go? And Isaiah said, I have a willing heart. I will go, I will do, I will be that person for you. And so sometimes all it takes is a willing heart. And then our last one is Ananias. Um, if you don't know who Ananias is, um, he has a very, very small part in, in scripture, but it's a very, very important part, um, and you'll see why. So um, I'm sure many of you know who Saul is. So Saul was... Uh, he was a Pharisee, he was highly educated in the scriptures, and he was persecuting the Christians. He was killing them, he was breathing out murderous threats, as the scripture says, and he was a part of um, Stephen stoning and the killing of other Christians um, who were taking the gospel. His goal in life was to thwart the spread of the gospel. And so um, we don't know very much about him, or we don't know very much about Ananias. Other than that, he was a disciple in Damascus. That's all scripture tells us. And it says that, um, just before this, that Saul, before we see Ananias' here I am moment, that right before God uh, calls to Ananias, that Saul has an encounter with Jesus, which left him blind. And all Jesus told him was, go to Damascus and you'll get some more instructions there, which... For a planner, I'm like, you want to tell me all the A, B, C, D, E, F, G of the plans? But no, he said, go, and I will give you instructions. Wait there for instructions. And so then in Acts 9, starting in verse 10, it says, Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at that house of Judas, look for a man of Taurus named Saul, for behold, he is praying, and he has seen a vision of a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, um, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And so Ananias, can you imagine how hard this would be? This man, he's calling Ananias to go and minister to, killed his friends. They killed the people he loved, the people he cared about, the people he was co-laboring with in the cause of Christ. And yet, Ananias was like, if you call me, I will go. Here I am, Lord. 
I am fully all in whatever you call me to do. And so Ananias immediately obeyed after the Lord told him what to do. He entered the house where Saul was. He laid hands on him and immediately scales fell from Saul's eyes and he rose and was baptized. And later his name was changed, his name was changed to Paul. Saul was, not Ananias. Saul to Paul. Um, and Paul is one of the great apostles of of the New Testament. And he wrote so much of the New Testament. Many of the letters, uh, the epistles uh, that are in this book were written by Paul. And he was, went to prison for the gospel. He uh, suffered for the gospel. He was in pain for the gospel because, um, because one man was faithful, because one man said, here I am. And he only has this small portion in scripture, but because of his obedience, because of his here I am, the gospel was taken to the nations. And we don't know what else Ananias says. Ananias did. I'm sure he did more than this. He was a faithful, obedient follower of Christ. But our here I am also impacts the next person's here I am. And so his here I am led to, led to Paul's slash Saul's. Um, and so we went through those really quick, just some stories, but we see six men here, who none of which were perfect. One was a murderer, one was a deceiver, one um, another who tried to make God's promises happen ahead of God's timing. None of these people are perfect, and none of us are perfect, but they recognized the voice of God. Why? Because they spent time with God. They knew God. Um, I was just talking to, uh, if you guys know, I didn't tell them I was going to say this, but they might be watching on live stream. Uh, Jake and Samantha Thayer, so they just had a baby, and he's so sweet, so cute, little SJ, and I was talking with them just shortly after they had him, and the thing that they said is, there was one point in the hospital, and I forget, they had to take him away to do something, um, and of all the babies crying in this nursery hospital room of all of the babies, um, they recognized their son's cry. That among all of the other cries, among all of the other noises, they're like, oh my gosh, that is our child. And so that we would be so in tune with the Lord, that we would be so in love and enamored by the Lord, that when we hear his voice, we would know it is his call. We would know it is not of the world. We would know that it is not of anything else, but that we would know it was his call, just as they knew it was their child's call. And I think one of the really cool things too about all of these passages you'll, you'll notice, and I kind of alluded to this at the beginning, is their here I am moment, their here I am, Lord, I'm all in, I'm here for what you have for me. It came before they knew what God was gonna call them to. And each of them were called to really hard things. And so they're like, God, I'm all in for whatever you have. And even if I'm a little skeptical at first, like I'm going to follow you wherever you lead because I know that wherever you lead is worth following. And so they gave their entire lives. They gave everything they had and they obeyed immediately. Abraham went the very next morning. Ananias left immediately in Ananias. Um, um, Isaiah was just a willing vessel and he was like, Lord, I will declare whatever message you have for these people. Um, and Moses might've been a little hesitant, but he did what the Lord asked and he returned to Egypt as soon um, as it was spoken to him. And so all when they were called by God were ready and attentive and they were available. And it is in response to God's great mercy that they said, yes, and they said, here I am. And through Abraham's here I am came salvation to the nation. Through Moses's here I am came 
freedom from bondage, from Jacob's here to family. Uh, from the faithfulness of a mother came Samuel's here I am moment. From Isaiah's here I am came great prophecies of a coming Messiah who would bring salvation to all the nations. And from Ananias's here I am came a great apostle who spread the word to all of the nations. And, and this is just part of the power of our here I am's in life. That as we say, here I am, God, that God can do all of these things through us because these were imperfect people. They were regular people like you and I, but we have to be all in. And I think sometimes it's really easy to get caught up in all of the things of life and not be all in and not present ourselves as a living sacrifice. We can just be a Sunday morning church or just a casual Christian or as Christy said a few weeks ago at the Christmas program, we would just be a checkbox Christian. Oh, I went to church today. Oh, I sat in a pew. Instead of being all in for the Lord and saying, here I am, here's my life, here's all I have to offer, Lord. And then when we go back to Genesis and we look at verse three, and this breaks, um, breaks my heart. In Genesis three, and we look at verse eight through 10, and this is Adam and Eve, this is after they had sinned, this is after they had eaten of the tree and they knew good from evil. And it says in verse eight, it says, they have heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And so here's another moment where they hear God and God is calling out to them and their response is not here I am. They're stuck in their sin and their shame and um, and it causes them to hide from a holy and perfect God. And I think sometimes that this can be us today. And maybe it's not our sin and our shame, or maybe it is. Maybe we're so stuck, you know, we sinned and we shamed and we're like, we cannot go before the Lord. We cannot give everything to, to him because of all of the sin and the shame weighing us down. But I have news for you. Jesus came to die to take that sin and to take that shame. And he nailed it to a cross so that you could walk in freedom. And maybe, just maybe that thing that's holding you back from when God is calling is not sin, is not shame, but it's the busyness of life. And it happens to all of us. And we get caught up in the rhythms and the motions and all of the things we have to do and we have to take this one to practice and that one over here and this other thing. And then I have this event on this day and we get so caught up in all the to-dos that we forget that the most important thing that we could possibly do is just be in God's presence. Um, and I know we're going a little late, but I just wanted to read this, this story to you really quickly. And um, there's this really beautiful story, and it's called My Heart Christ Home. I'm not going to read the whole thing to you because the whole thing is kind of long. But essentially, um, I didn't write down who wrote it, which I think it's Robert Munger, I think was his name. But uh, this whole uh, article, not article, but this short story that he wrote, is based on Ephesians 3.16, and it says that God would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his power in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. And so, um, so that Christ dwells in our heart, and he get, kind of gives in all this imagery of, okay, our heart is Christ's home. And so going through all of these rooms, that there's a library, which is, he, um, in metaphors, that's, that's not a verb, but uh, metaphorically, 
calls it the, the study of the mind. And so the library is like all the things that we put into our mind. That the dining room is all of our appetites and our desires, all the things we want in life. And then the workroom is where our talents and our careers go. And are we using those to honor the Lord? And then there's the playroom for our social activities, for the things we do for fun. Um, and then there's the living room. And the living room is the part that I would like uh, just to quickly read to you all. So um, it says, we walked, we as in this man and Jesus. So they're walking through the house that is his heart. And so we walked to the next room, which is the living room. And the room was rather, rather intimate and comfortable. I liked it. It had a fireplace, overstuffed chairs, a sofa, and a quiet atmosphere. He also seemed pleased with it. He said, this is indeed a delightful room. Let us come here often. It is secluded and quiet, and we can fellowship here together. Well, naturally, as a young Christian, I was thrilled. I couldn't think of anything I would rather do than have a few minutes with Christ and in intimate companionship. He promised, Jesus promised, I will be here early every morning. Meet me here, and we will start the day together. So morning after morning, I would come downstairs to the living room, and he would take a book of the Bible from a bookcase, and he would open it. Then we would read it together, and he would tell me of its riches, unfold its truths, and he would make my heart warm as he revealed his love and grace toward me. These were wonderful hours together. In fact, we called the living room the withdrawing room. It was a period when we had our quiet time together. But little by little, under the pressure of my many responsibilities, this time began to be shortened. Why? I don't know. But I thought I was just too busy to spend time with Christ. This was not intentional, you understand. It just happened that way. Finally, not only was the time shortened, but I began to miss a day now or then. And it was an examination of time at university. And then it was some other urgent urgent emergency. I would miss it for two days in a row and often more. I remember one morning when I was in a hurry, rushing downstairs, eager to be on my way. As I passed the living room, the door was open. Looking in, I saw the fire, a fire in the fireplace, and Jesus was sitting there. Suddenly in dismay, I thought to myself, he was my guest. I invited him into my heart. He has come to the, as the Lord of my home, and yet here I am neglecting him. I turned and went in. With a downcast glance, I said, Blessed master, forgive me. Have you been here all of these mornings? Yes, he said. I told you I'd be here every morning to meet with you. And then I was even more ashamed. He had been so faithful in spite of my faithfulness. I asked his forgiveness, and he readily forgave me as he does when we are truly repentant. And the trouble with you is this, Jesus said. You have been thinking of the quiet time, of the Bible study, and the prayer time as a factor in your own spiritual progress, but you have forgotten that this hour means something to me also. Remember, I love you. I have redeemed you at a great cost, and I value your fellowship. Now, do not neglect this hour if only for my sake. Whatever else may be your desire, remember, I want your fellowship. You know the truth that Christ desires my companionship, that he loves me and wants me and wants to be with me and waits for me, has done more to transform my quiet time with God than any other single fact. Don't let Christ wait alone in the living room of your heart. But every day, find some time with your Bible and prayer. You may be together with him. James uh, 4.8 says, Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. And he's waiting for us. He's waiting for us to say, here I am, God. He's waiting for us to show up in that living room. He's waiting for us to show up in obedience to him and to live out the calling that he has called us to. He is waiting for us. He's like, I love you, and I want 
to know you and I want your fellowship. And God already, he already knows us, but he wants to know us from our perspective. He wants us to talk to him. He wants us to tell him things. He wants us to know him, to know the treasures in his word. In Isaiah 58, and this is our, our final hineni. I don't have my little pronunciation, so I don't remember how it's pronounced. But this is our last um, here I am moment. In Isaiah 58, 8 through 9, it says, Then shall light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you, and the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, Here I am. So when we cry out to God, he is there, he is ready, he is saying, here I am, I'm all in, I'm invested, I love you. And what is our response back to that? Um, and so, God wants you, God wants all of you, and he wants to know you, and he wants all of you, and he's giving you all of himself. And so, um, if Carrie and Rebecca want to make your way to the stage, um, just in closing, um, a quick story. Um, so a week and a half ago, I played my first pickleball game, um, which is probably a funny story to bring up at this moment, but uh, it'll make sense. So I played pickleball for the first time, and I played with Pastor Robert, Leanne, and Pastor Carrie. And I'm going to admit, I'll be the first to admit, like there was a lot of hype surrounding pickleball. Like there was a lot of people playing pickleball. And at first I was like, mm, I'm not really interested. I just don't really know how I feel about that. And then I think it was Jeanette I was talking to one day and she was like, you have to play pickleball. It's so fun. And then she started explaining all the rules. And I was just like, that's too many rules. That's so confusing. I really don't want to play now. I just have no interest. And then um, things, one thing led to another. Pastor Robert was like, let's all go play pickleball. And I was like, Sure. And then I was also on pa Pastor Robert's team, which all I could think about the whole time was, I can't lose this for him. I know how competitive he is. I was like, if I lose this, this is going to be really bad. And so I was like, must win. <laughs> I was like, don't fail. Um, and these were the thoughts that were going through my head as I was playing pickleball. But as we started playing pickleball, um, Leanne was so gracious and so kind to explain all of the rules. And she did it in such a beautiful and gentle way. And also was just kind of like, you know, you also just kind of learn as you go, which really makes sense. And it really made it a lot easier. And so um, I played. All the rules made sense. I was like, why was I so overwhelmed by all of these rules? They all made sense. And I actually am now really <laughs> obsessed with pickleball. <laughs> and I am now in the hype crowd of pickleballing. <laughs> and so you might be like, okay, why are you telling us this random story about pickleball? Um, and I think for some of us, when we look at Christianity, when we look at faith, we look at it kind of like I look at pickleball. Like I was like, ah, I'm just not that interested. Some of the things, like it kind of seems overwhelming. I just don't know if it's for me. But that instant you take that step and you say, Lord, I'm gonna put my faith in you and I don't really know what's gonna happen next, that it's so worth it. And that we, like I became obsessed with pickleball, we will become enamored and we will become captivated by him. And so I don't know where every heart is or every life is in this room, but if you have not given your life over to Christ, can I just tell you that it's worth it? If you haven't realized how worthy He is, if you haven't recognized His love for you, if you haven't recognized um, just how much He wants to know you this morning, can I just tell you that He does? He loves you. He wants to know you. He wants to be in a relationship with you. He doesn't 
You know, you don't have to be perfect. You don't have to know everything. I walked into pickleball. I'm like, I don't know what the heck's going on. And, you know, you don't have to know what's going on. You just have to take that step of faith. And you just, just have to say, here I am, God. Here's my life. Do with it what you will. You don't have to have all the right answers. You don't have to know all of the things. You just have to step out and say, God, here I am. And so with every eye closed and every head bowed, if there is anyone in this room today who would say, I want to give my life to Christ this morning. I want to give my life over to him and serve his plans and his purposes. Would you just raise your hand right now? If there's anyone in this room, once again, he is worth it. He is worthy. Okay, you can raise your heads. Well, now that I'm speaking to a room of people who have given their lives to Christ, I'm speaking to a room of believers. Um, kind of going back a little bit to my pickleball story. So since I am now obsessed with pickleball, I have taken steps to, um, steps forward in my pickleball relationship. And so I have purchased some paddles online. I had paddles within a week of playing. And I've, you know, joined this group chat of people who go play pickleball all the time and all of these different things. And I'm all in with pickleball, as much as a person can be, I suppose. And I don't mean to, this isn't a funny thing. This is a very serious thing. But that we would be all in with Christ. And I want you to ask yourselves, am I all in with Christ? Last week, Pastor Robert asked this profound question. Um, and he said, is the life that you're living worth Christ dying for? Just think about that. Is the life you're living worth Christ dying for? Are you living a life that is sold out for him, that you are as a living sacrifice unto him, that your life is all in for him? There's this beautiful quote, um, if there's any Narnia fans in the room, I love, 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 love Narnia. I cry every time I read every single book in the series. And if you don't know what Narnia is, it's a kind of a giant metaphor for Jesus um, and giving his life for us. And then the book, The Final Battle, mimics uh, kind of Revelation, some of the themes and uh, happenings of Revelation and Christ coming back. Um, and in that last book, The Last Battle, um, as they are, you know, they've won this battle and they're, they're going towards Christ. And there's one of the people in their, in their group. And he says, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I have been looking for all of my life, though I never knew it until now. Come further up and further in. And that we would live, um, and that, that's the end of the quote, and it's from C.S. Lewis, but that we would live each day going further up and further in to relationship with him, that we would not stay stagnant, that we would not stand still, that we would not just be complacent sitting in a church pew, but that we would get up, that we would say, here I am, God, that we would give him all of us. We would give him our entire lives, that we would make it known how worthy he is, God, that by prioritizing him, by giving him our time, by, again, by giving our, our lives to him. And like that verse said at the beginning in Romans, two, or in Romans 12, that in recognition, in light of his great mercy for us, that the only proper response, the only thing reasonable to even do is to give ourselves to him all of ourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. That we would 
be completely devoted to loving him, living by his standards, serving his purposes, that our lives would bring honor and glory to him. Because that's what real worship is. Worship isn't just sitting and, you know, hands in the pocket, just singing a song. It's not communal karaoke. That worship is a lifestyle. That worship is giving all of ourselves to him. And so if you are in this room, um, and you feel God tugging at your heart and to take that next step forward with the Lord to say, here I am, God. And I think all of us could come up to this altar and say, here I am, God. And we could um, just have that moment with the Lord, our magnificent and wonderful creator who loves us so much and gave his son to die for us. And so um, Carrie and Rebecca are gonna close um, in a song. And I encourage you that as you sing this song, that you think about the words and you think about what it means to worship the Lord, what it means to live your life sold out for Him. And that as you pray, that you would ask God to embolden you, to give you the courage to say, here I am. Because it's not an easy thing to say. It's just three words, if you just look at it like that. But the meaning behind it and what it symbolizes and really what you're saying is so much deeper and so much more than that. And so I'm gonna pray for us and then they're gonna lead us in a song. So dear Heavenly Father, God, God, we just thank you for who you are. God, we thank you for sending your son to die on a cross for us, to give his life so that we could be in relationship with you, God. God, we are so enamored by you and captivated by you. God, your mercy, your grace, your love for us is so incredible. God, we could never describe it. We could never earn it. We could never, we could never do anything possibly to repay you, God. But you love us so much that you, you gave it to us. And so, Lord, I pray that as we come to the altar right now, as we worship you, God, as we say, here I am, God, that this would be a people, this would be a congregation, that this would be a church that would say, here I am, God. Use me for your purposes. Use me for your will. Let me live by what you would have me to live by, God. That they would boldly say that, Lord, and they would live that out each and every day, God, because it is an each and every day, a daily thing. And Lord, we just thank you and we praise you for that, God. I pray, God, that your presence would just continue to fill this place and it would touch hearts and lives, Lord. God, we just thank you and we love you and we come before you humbly. We worship you, God. In your name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Jewel City Podcast. You can join us in person Sundays at 10 a.m. or 6 p.m. We have something for all people and all ages. Or join our live stream at 10 a.m. 